0: Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great-rate travel money at participating credit unions.
1: Good morning. On Wednesday, Lifeline spoke to a woman they called Mary. She had been in a relationship with a man for 20 months. His name is Daniel Kane of Waterville Terrace in Blanchardstown. And in November 2020, he was convicted of intimidation, assault and 12 counts of assault causing harm. He was also the first person in Ireland to be convicted of coercive control. He was sentenced to 10 and a half years in prison, a sentence which he appealed but was rejected. Now, the abuse that Mary suffered was horrific and her story is harrowing. It is also very powerful. However, a warning. This is difficult to listen to and it may be particularly difficult for some. So please bear that in mind. Mary met this man through a mutual friend and when he offered to rent her a room in his apartment, their relationship started.
2: The relationship... Began very quickly, and everything moved very fast. Okay. And that's something I learned when I was in women's Aid that I never got to know him. Oh. You know, we never... Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Um, I never got to know his triggers or whatever until I was living with him, and I was living with him very suddenly, and... um.
3: And what, what were the triggers, Mary, when you discovered them?
2: Oh anything. If I nice. was too slow um, I was delaying him. If I walked too fast I was ignoring him. Anything could set him up. Anything.
3: My God.
1: And very quickly he got control of her money.
2: I moved in with him and I was just finishing a contract. Yeah. So I suppose I had my last month's wages and I had a few quid. and Yeah. But over the next few months, obviously, the money dwindles out. Um, And he kind of suggested just take a few months off, like, and then look for your ideal job, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, So I was applying for jobs and that, um, and I was on social welfare. But as I said, the money kind of ran out, so the next thing... It was, we had bills to pay together and we had this to do together and that to do together and it always had to be together. I had no independence. It was our house together. Um So it, it just kind of, it became like a joint account but it wasn't a joint account. I had no control over my joint account. He yeah. had full control and so I ended up with literally
1: oh,
2: like i would have to ask him for 3:30 to get a bus my at the god. time
3: my god
1: and that control and fear extended to all areas of her life
2: i spent a year fearing a door creaking yeah because it meant i always went into bed earlier than him so I'd just be like, oh my God, he's on the way. What's he going to do to me? Is it going to be a good night or a bad night? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If I talked too much, I was mouthy. If I didn't talk, I was um, sulking and yeah, lashed. I couldn't do right for doing wrong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
3: yeah. You couldn't do right for doing wrong.
1: And the violence she suffered is truly frightening.
3: Burning your foot... Cutting you with a piece of pizza slicer, headbutting you in the face while you were recovering from a nasal injury, stamping on your arm, uh, stamping on your head, strangling you, which left finger marks along your throat. Were you were you hospitalised for any of these attacks?
2: I was hospitalised 19 times in 2019.
3: And how about? I don't want to ask you a question, like, what was the most serious, because they were all serious. But what was the longest stay you had in hospital, That's maybe a better way? (laughs) This
2: is, um... I didn't actually stay there, because they were, they weren't superficial injuries, but they were things I needed scans for and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But... The longest day I had in the hospital. When the hospital knew, the hospital knew what I was happening, but I wouldn't press charges. Okay. So um, they put me into the psychiatric and took off my phone. Mm-hmm. They took my phone away from me.
3: Oh, they thought you were you were trying to self harm.
2: No, they didn't. No, they knew what was going on. Yeah. They, they wanted me to have a little break away from him.
3: Okay. Okay. So because
2: at that stage things were so, like, obvious to the hospital yeah. that they said, leave her here for a few days, kind of, take her phone over, he won't be able to contact her and see yeah. how she gets on. Um, so I think that was, like, four days I was in hospital. I I ran away so many times, I slept rough. I slept in bus shelters and bike bike sheds and... um. Mm-hmm fields and parks
3: Obviously you were scared of your life literally scared for your life
2: I wasn't scared for my life I wasn't I, I, well, I wished okay. he killed me I wished he killed me what I was scared of was that he, he used to stand and beat me and do all sorts of things to my head and all I was afraid of was that I was going to end up a vegetable and someone <laughs> Someone would be changing my nappies <coughs> for the rest of my life. that—that that, that was a worse fear than my death.
1: And she told no one about this abuse, no one at all.
2: None of my family knew how bad it was till the very, very end. You yeah, see, yeah. Um, like, because he was very clever. Yeah. You see, if anyone was coming to see you, I wouldn't have bruises that week. But it was, like, six hours after they'd gone. It was just, like, hell for leather. It's just... Do you know what? I, I don't know what's worth. It's the public humiliation or the private humiliation. Mm-hmm. I don't know which is worth. Yeah. When there's little boys in a football pitch running up, please, mister, please, please, please don't hurt her. Little boys, like... My heart breaking. I'm here, just like gone. I'm going to tell you you've made a me again.
1: However, it was when she went to hospital with a broken arm that it all became just too much.
2: I was in hospital three times that week. Um, it stamped on my head, so my ears bled. And I got really afraid that I was having some kind of... So I went over myself Um to the hospital it was only across the road and okay. I can't remember the second one like I, this was all a big huge yeah. shock to me but he he hurt my arm on a Thursday night Um, he caught my hand and he kicked my arm so he broke my arm was broken straight across but I didn't know and on Saturday night I said to him, I need to go to hospital, my arm isn't right, like my arm isn't working. And it was completely broken, like my arm, my my ulna was completely snapped. Um, When I went into hospital, um, he came with me and I had choke marks and I had a black eye, I had, you know, the usual, normal things that I would have had and... I got my X-rays done, and the nurses were speaking to me, and then the head of A and E was speaking to me, and then there was detectives involved, and I, I kept saying I fell, I fell, I fell. Yeah. And eventually, I started to cry, and I said I didn't fall, and they said well, we know you didn't fall because nobody yeah. can actually break their arm the way. You
3: broke yeah.
2: You have broken well, your well, unless
3: well, like he broke it,
2: unless a horse kicks them or something. He was arrested in the hospital and um, it, it was just all a big blur. And I thought like, we'd be back home a few days later because we had such a codependent relationship. If That's right, that I thought this had all passed. I'm not pressing charges or anything. But yeah. there was enough medical evidence well, for that... them to charge him and I didn't even have to be involved.
3: And Mary, And he it...
2: always told me that no one would believe me, Yeah. that nobody would believe me. Yeah. But those guards came to me in that hospital. I got so much support. They believed me. They believed everything I said. Yeah. And to the point that two of them came to my mother's funeral. That's oh, fantastic. I wanted so many times to walk down the road to that guard station. And tell them. But he always told me nobody would believe me.
1: Yeah. But in 2020, a jury found him guilty. And Mary believes her mother helped get her through that trial.
2: My mum died the week before I was in court. Oh, God. And... My mum and her deathbed said to me, no one will ever hurt my little girl again. Um, and that's the only thing that got me through that court that week. And I'm sorry to being yeah, I totally understand. But I had my mum up there. I had my angel. Yeah. And yeah. if she had known, she would have dragged me out there by my hair herself. Yeah. <laughs> and said, what are you doing with someone like that, you stupid girl? <laughs> you know the way I respond but...
3: but you're not stupid. But I understand your mother is holding your hand when you're in that court. Or she yeah. had She had her arm around you, actually.
1: Yeah, she had her two arms around me. Now Mary had nothing but praise for the Gardi in their handling of her case and she also thanked Women's Aid for all of their help. But getting on with her own life after what she has been through can be very difficult.
3: But you are amazing.
2: Some days I'm
0: amazing at some days. Yeah. Well, today...
2: It's... Some days it's really hard. Yeah, of course. Joe, it's really hard. It's like... Yeah it's really hard to rebuild your life and try and try and move on and when you have a bad day that no one like understands what you've been through because you see I'm crying it's like a child being beaten behind closed doors okay yeah I was, basically. You, I'm an adult. You can't go out there and go, look at me, please, because I've been abused and please all oh, be nice to me and please be sorry for me. Yeah. So you put your chin up and you go out and you put on this brave face and it's very hard to do some yeah. Very hard.
1: Mary with Joe on Wednesday's Lifeline, and if you need them, rte.ie/helplines. On the Rolling Wave, a celebration of women pipers, with the release of Manaw Napi Billen, featuring among others, Maeve O'Donnell. and on a p-villain from the rolling wave back in a bit welcome back on drive time provocation all over the shop this week we will start with Galway City or a mouthful of broken teeth for so it was described by Wolf Daseking architect and one of the world's leading city planners Galwegians Sarah and Cormac <clears throat> not impressed
4: the first view I had from this the first impression I had from the city was uh, not the very best one. So the entrance of every city, how you come into a city, how a city shakes your hand to persons who are coming from outside was for me like, uh, how do we say, arbitrary or say it looks arbitrary. It looks like every city in in this world and not in this world. There are some which are excellent done the entrance and this one I was was really shocked
0: but what, why were you shocked what was particularly <laughs> gross about Galway in your opinion
4: well it, You see, you came from the outside. We drove through the land, uh, through the countryside. It was fantastic. The land scenery is fantastic. And then you approached the city. And then suddenly comes on the left-hand side some investment, on the right-hand side some investment. There came uh, um, places for getting petrol. On the other hand side was something to buy something, car parking outside. It looked that no one had the real, had real idea in which way an entrance to a city could be planned. All was an investment on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side. The architecture was like it is today, um, like McDonald's, like uh, something to fast food uh, Mm -hmm. businesses. And I was, uh, I can only say I was shocked.
1: Well, don't hold back, Wolf. And that was not all.
4: Most important point you mentioned. The next point I saw is that Galway is a totally car-orientated city. I have never seen, never seen in a size of city which has around 80,000 inhabitants such an immense density of car situation inside the inner area and also outside the outside area. And even if you come by, I know the area of the train station. I went around, it's very close to the hotel we stood in. I I looked around, there's also the, the bus parking place also inside. It's all done. It's all working. But it's not designed, It's it no, doesn't it's badly designed heart, for Bul- you know.
0: Yeah, they say they're working on it. Look, I am from Galway, so it I upsets am? me greatly. And people can text us to 51551, uh, but you're one of the leading lights in the world in terms of uh, planning or urban centres. Tell me, talk to me about Dublin then. What, what did you make of Dublin, Professor Wolfe? Well,
1: uh, Less of the deflection, Cormac. Back to Galway. He brought in Sarah.
0: I have a co-pilot here, um, Sarah. She wants to ask you a question. She's also from Galway, so beware.
1: (laughs) Yes, please. I actually... I have two questions, if you don't mind. Um, You know, when you're describing coming into Galway and you see McDonald's here and a fast food restaurant there and a a petrol station, is that not the way it is in in very many cities around the world? You know, that's my impression. If, you know, you arrive at an airport, often those sort of big travel infrastructure type things or, or fast food restaurants are often what you encounter first going into a city.
4: But this is the point which I say we should or have to change. Because well, these are the invests, they are coming everywhere. And what is missing from my opinion is a strong hand of a planner who says in this way we have to make it, in this way we have to bring, for example, streets which have trees around on left-hand side, on the right-hand side, to mm-hmm. hide the car parking areas behind these trees. When you come to other cities in, in Europe, you can say Nantes, you can say Bordeaux, you can say Freiburg, you can say Tübingen, you can say uh, cities around. In, uh, in Northern Italy, they have now this idea. For years they didn't follow this line, but now they make it, because cities are in a, in a struggle against each other. So when you close your eyes, when you close your eyes, and say afterwards you, you are driven inside an area, and then someone says, well, now open your eye, and you could say, where are you then? Well, this is the point which is necessary to mention. You must, you must see, you must find out. You have must find, have an identification about the area you are going in.
1: Wolf Dasking, throwing shade on the drivetime homestead. In it has to be said, a very charming and interesting manner. But if you are in Dublin, take a stroll through St. Stephen's Green in the company of Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Ellen Reid. She has designed an app for your sonic journey. It is called Soundwalk. Culturefile. put in the earphones.
5: By the lake, the way that the light reflects on the water is really beautiful and you can hear a high, kind of um, sparkly tone that kind of coasts over that, that, that helps tie the instrumental music together in that area. And so there are some elements like that. I also notice a lot in parks, if it feels closed or open, because parks that are so well-designed, like St. Stephen's Green, you, you move through these wooded areas and then into an open space that's, it feels like the whole sky opens up and you're there. And so mirroring that kind of um, warmth of the closeness of the trees to an open space where you're getting to watch fellow Dubliners just be and enjoy their time. I have to say that the ducks are quite aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to not get my tea uh, you know taken from my hand from the ducks. The way that the soundwalk is designed is that it's in collaboration with, with the park, and that means with the time of day, with these aggressive ducks, <laughs> with um, the people around you, with the wind and the birds, and that all of that is, you know, half of the experience.
1: so pretty it's
5: just so pretty
1: and kind of beautiful from File. on the county measure Offaly
4: step into County Offaly and you step into the heart of Ireland the flatlands of bog and water the warmth and welcome of intact community the splendour of nature wild and reclaimed an ease of time, a place and people that hold an extraordinary legacy of sacred and industrial sites, foundational history. In a way, the county story starts here. Offaly was Kings County, one of the first of the Irish counties carved out of the old Gaelic orders and kingdoms, its neighbour, Queens County or Leash, a kind of twin in the renaming and colonising stakes. The past is not such a distant country.
1: Vincent Woods hitting the county in spots. And he went to Dangan where the town hall is getting a bit of a rejig. But for Oliver Connor, this is a building which holds a few stories. This was the only hall... Around there was no halls in Tullamore. This was the only dance hall
6: there was so around. So it must have been fairly throbbing with life and music. Uh, then. It truly was. Me, myself, and me, my we come here and we go in the pub and have a couple of wines and come back in. <laughs> I asked this lady to dance and took her out. She got out, and of course, the first few steps around was grander then. Possibly I walked in her feet or fell up against her. (laughs) and To make the conversation, I said, can I have the last dance with you? She said, oh, you're having it, and walked away. (laughs) Actually, I met my late wife out there.
7: She obviously chanced the second round of dancing with you.
6: (laughs) 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 She didn't mind me walking on her toes (laughs)
1: But this was far from aught was better nostalgia. Because the hall, well, it's all about the digital hope now. Here is Brendan Darcy of the hall committee.
7: Brendan, you own uh, the Blackthorn pub across the way and you've been looking over at this building for a long time.
1: 22 years I've been
0: looking at these doors closed a lot of the time and I said it's such a shame. All the community
6: came together uh, and it was over... Thirty-seven people painting. Uh, that yeah, it was great atmosphere in the in the town and set the project I suppose off in the, the right start, the right right attitude. Yeah. So kind of volunteer painting brigade. The whole football team.
0: Of our plan here, our five-year plan, is some office pods. So like, there's people that are, are commuting to Dublin or wherever. We might get, keep them stay in Dangan and maybe get some. We're of some charging ports for the electric cars in the future and stuff. So digi-
7: we're trying to think log. of a future plan
5: here for mm. Dangan. Yeah, so look at the future. And people in
0: Yeah, digital Dangan would have been a bog town. I suppose 80% employment would be through Borden and Mona. There was a power station. There's a brickette factory. That's all gone now. It's really a commuting town. So we have to work otherwise ways of regenerating the interest of the community back in here again. There's a lot of people moved into Dangan over the last 15, 20 years. So it'd be nice to get everyone involved.
7: It must be so lovely to see lights on here again oh, and the door mm, open and people come
4: in and out.
6: And the smell of fresh paint and the smell of raw timber being cut. and Every building complements the next building. If we can take down the, the bad ones and put up the good ones and, and keep the, the, the old ones alive.
1: Dangan for resilience—that was awfully, as featured this week on the county measure. But we will finish back in the pale palpitations if we left it for too long. For park bench, John Bella Riley asked passers-by a question, and with disarming honesty, they answered.
6: What do you wish you could
7: change about yourself?
6: I'd love to be able to stand up and walk again, because I miss walking
4: around Stephen's Green because that was something that I would do three times a day covering at least 15 to 20 miles walking on the external, outside of Stephen's Green. Now I, I need to propel myself in my wheelchair which is also weather dependent because I can't come out in the rain because I end up coming out with a puddle of water in my lap and I'm soaking, which is a bit of a bummer.
7: One thing that I've changed about myself that I'm trying to learn It's like, hug more people, show them more love, you know? I think this is the thing that I'm trying to do more in my life.
6: I I should be less critical of people, I think. I should be uh, more sympathetic, but I'm a a bit snooty. A bit, sorry? Snooty. I see. And what kinds of things are you critical of? I can't stand men in short sleeve shirts in restaurants. I, I wouldn't let them in. I do like people to be properly dressed in restaurants and cafes and things like that. Where do you think you get that from? Oh, my dad. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, would, he, wouldn't, he would garden with his, in a suit with his tie. I'm not quite that bad, you know. It's all doing things properly. A bit old fashioned, you know, a bit Victorian even, I believe. I've been told.
1: <laughs> back in a bit. Welcome back.
3: For
0: you stole Trevelyan's corn, So the young might see the morn. Our prison
3: ship lies waiting in the bay.
1: Everybody. No, no. Ah yes, in the news this week, because former BBC journalist Laura Trevelyan, you know the name, said her family would consider paying compensation to Ireland because of her descendants' actions. Great, great, great. Grandfather was indeed Sir Charles Trevelyan, Treasury official during the famine. However, great song. Historically accurate? It would seem not. Here is Liam Kennedy, Professor of History at Queen's University, Belfast.
6: Yeah, um, could I say um, "Fields of Rye is a, you know it's a great tune, great song by a wonderful singer-songwriter who I once met, Pete Saint John. However, it's probably not the best source for an understanding of the Irish famine, or indeed of Trevelyan's role. Charles Trevelyan was the principal civil servant handling the the Irish famine through all the years from eighteen forty through to 51. So in that sense, he, is, he has a huge role in terms of implementing, not so much devising, but implementing famine policy. Clearly, he was an influential figure, a very persuasive one. His critics would say he was highly bureaucratic, stiff-necked, um, somewhat self-righteous, I mean, he worked like a demon all through the Great Famine and, as he would see it, with the best of motives.
1: Hmm, so implementing rather than devising. Cormac, though, adamant that Trevelyan must have known what was happening at the time. So was inaction, not in and of itself, deserving of some blame?
0: People, I mean, and your book as well, uh, accounts for the various uh, eyewitness accounts of people dying on the side of the road because they didn't have enough uh, nutritious uh, food, and and people like Sir Charles, Charles Trevelyan were given those eyewitness accounts. Presumably, they were told, "Look, we need help here." What did he not do then, or what did, what did he decide to cause his um, great 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 granddaughter uh, to say what she has said?
4: Yeah,
6: I could say in relation to Laura Trevelyan, she may actually be beating herself up uh, a little too much Um, in the sense that, you know, he worked like hell, um, did his best to ensure that the bureaucracy in Dublin and the bureaucracies throughout the, the island worked as effectively as possible. I mean, you're absolutely right. There is no doubt he was well-informed in what was going on. There were endless reports coming from Irish priests, bishops, ministers, Church of Ireland particularly, and Quakers perhaps especially influential. So there is no sense in which the, the cabinet and the top civil servants didn't know what was happening. However, I think we have to also make the point that the disaster was on an unprecedented scale. I mean, there isn't anything quite like it in terms of... um,
0: Yeah, I um, I know that, but but what we're discussing here really, I suppose, and what I'm trying to get from you is the disaster was uh, on an unprecedented scale, but so was the inaction, wasn't it?
6: Well, it, it depends. I mean, ultimately, responsibility for spending policy... Rested with the the exchequer, the British exchequer, and as head of that, Sir Charles Wood. Mm -hmm. So if I was looking for someone to criticise heavily for the conduct of famine relief policies, it would actually be Wood.
1: Wood, eh? Way too common a surname. Not the same ring as Trevelyan. And then, finally, this.
6: If we were going to um, lay much of the blame at the door of the Trevelyan family, we would also have to think of others who were responsible for mishandlings during the Great Famine. I'm thinking particularly, well, at the political level, the Irish political representatives, Daniel O'Connell's repeal of the Union Party, really did have a bad famine. But more immediately in the localities, we're talking about Irish farmers especially medium-sized and large farmers, Catholic farmers in the main who got rid of their labourers during the Great Famine. Not all, of course, but in many cases, just like Irish landlords. So
0: So they're as much to blame as the British administration, is that it?
6: Well, I wouldn't make an equivalence there, but I would certainly say that responsibility okay. is fairly widely diffused amongst a whole series of elites. Okay. And well, that, it, it doesn't really make sense to just focus on, on one family.
1: Those professors with their nuance and complexity, we will not have it. Liam Kennedy from Queen's University, Belfast, and all week long, we murmur. A hum, a nod to events across the water. Hell's bells, even Nick Cave is going.
7: Beyond the interminable but necessary debates about the abolition of the monarchy, I hold an inexplicable emotional attachment to the royals, the strangeness of them, the deeply eccentric nature of the whole affair that so perfectly reflects the unique weirdness of Britain itself. I'm just drawn to that kind of thing. The bizarre, the uncanny, the stupefying, spectacular, the awe-inspiring. Do you know what? He makes a very good case for going to the Carnation. I, almost from an anthropological as much as a monarchical ex, uh, experience. And I can totally understand that. You'd just going, yeah, of course I'll go. But what about your, your ethics and your... Mar- yeah, well, I just want to see stuff. <laughs> I'm curious. Give me a break here. I, 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 I do understand that.
1: Was he angling for a seat down the back? Squeeze in the end of the pew. You will hardly know I'm here. Slightly well myself, you know. But with the Darcy, Royal Watcher, Jenny Bond. And they were all about the crown.
7: Are you, are you, are you a crown expert? There's two crowns. The first one he wears is the St. Edward's crown, which has been there since the 1700s, yep. the 1600s, uh, the 17th 60, century. 1661, uh, yeah,
4: yeah. solid gold. It's like having a small baby on your head, apparently. Five pounds it weighs. Right. <laughs> and is it true that he is
7: practising it by wearing, by, by walking around with flour, a bag of flour on his head?
4: Is that true? I I read that somewhere. No, I no. don't know, but it had to be a couple of bags of flour, yes, actually. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I, well, the Queen certainly did practice by wearing the, not St. Edward's crown, but I think the Imperial State crown, which is the second one, mm. the one that we, he'll be wearing most of the time. Um, and she did use to, uh, Charles remembers her going up uh, to bath time in the nursery wearing the crown, he thought was a little bizarre. <laughs> but, um, so so he, he,
7: he he goes into a church and emerges then with the Imperial crown that you've been talking about. Um, that's right. so, so that's a more practical crown then, so. Well, I it's, not quite, it's <laughs> not
4: quite so big. The Queen used to call it her party hat. Oh, right. Um, okay. It's made of gold. It, it yeah. has nearly 3,000 diamonds. Um, yes. And the Cullinan Two in it, which is part of the Tell huge... Tell us about that
7: there, there. The, the Cullinan II. Because, uh,
1: you know, we might save ourselves that because guess what? It's a really big diamond. On you go, Ray.
7: In the lead up to it, it it's bringing the monarchy and its role and all its wealth into sharp focus, isn't it? And it's it's not coming out of it well at all. <laughs>
4: Um, no, but all the polls that we are being taken and they're the still, opinion polls are being taken. It. Yes, they still do. I mean, okay. I know it
1: is an anachronism. It is ludicrous, really. But yeah. it seems to work. It seems to work, says Jenny Bond. So will you be sneaking a look at it? The frocks, the rig outs, the seating plan. Harry will sandwiched between a rake of cousins. Well, if you want to, you can, because RTE is broadcasting four hours of it. Yes, four. In the doll, top hats crushed, flat caps donned. Not on, said some. And had he been there, as he told Colm Amungon on Late Debate, independent TD Thomas Pringle would have joined the pylon.
6: I, I wasn't in it all today when it came up. Uh, there, but right. I'll what object, would you have said? I'll object to it here if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, why? I mean, do they show the... Because they're normally showing... Coronation I think. of the American president. Do they show that? Do they show the coronation of the French president? Like, I mean, why?
0: I, I, I think it's a waste of... I think possibly because the interconnected histories are different. What do you, what do you think of it? Well, I um, think showing uh, the, the, UK, the coronation
2: on one is certainly one of our biggest trading partners and it's very important for relationships between Ireland and the UK and certainly when the Queen came and uh, came in the past, you know, I do think it strengthened um, relationships between the two countries and I think that, you know, I, I have no issue with my you, party leader going
0: certainly. And, and, and as for the four-hour broadcast, will you be watching it?
2: Um, I
4: will certainly dip into look at part <laughs> of it. I, I don't think I'll be on the um,
0: invite list at
7: this stage, you know.
1: Finnegales, Maria Byrne putting on the fascinator but only for the highlights, or so she says. But what, say callers, to Lifeline?
3: What do you think of Royal oh, telefish Aaron? Oh,
2: Joe, to be honest with you, I think it's... To be honest with you, I do be rude, I just think it's a joke. Like, Irish people, I don't think they should be even turning on the TV to go look at the king after the hardship that they've put us through and they're still going to put us through. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just going to put, we don't know what they're going to put the troubles back into full swing, hard borders, anything like this. Do you know what I mean? I just think it's an absolute joke. Well, I think I'd have to give the reply that my grandmother gave to my mother when te- televisions first came and RT came okay. and the queen mother was on the television and my mother said, doesn't she look great? And my grandmother replied, why wouldn't she? She never washed a cup in her life. So anyway, <laughs> I I think that, that, that if anybody wants to go to television, to visit, but I certainly won't be watching it on television. Okay,
3: what do you think but of- I think
2: the opportunity I think the opportunity presents itself, so for uh, King Charles to uh, finally come out and mm. to say sorry on behalf of the aristocracy and the monarchy, not the English people, but the an- aristocracy and the... And, and, the, and the king, the monarchy, for what they did in
4: Ireland over generations. No, oh, it's, um, I don't see any problem with RT broadcasting um, the coronation on on Saturday. I mean, they're not spending anything on us.
3: As far as we know, yeah. They might make a few, Bob. Uh, so, they uh, might but
4: make ask. a few, Bob, with advertising, <laughs> yeah, you like, know. <laughs> the pageant is European pageant.
3: Yeah,
2: okay. Okay,
4: it could be, a, it could be like RTE broadcasting the Bastille Day. They have a slot to fill. Like, I look at Irish people. Okay, we're Irish people. Mm-hmm. But culturally, we're British. In that, we speak a language. Yeah. We are influenced by their culture, be it music, be it art, be it fashion. So I, I really don't see the big thing with it. So
3: like, what do you think I of RTE see- showing the four hours? desperate.
4: <laughs> why, why? I, I, for that
2: very reason. That wh- what are we doing? Are we reinforcing that this is normal behaviour to spend £100 million on, on a coronation? You know, even though I know he's cut down and I know he's brought in community people and that's all good and oh. I wouldn't criticise the people getting on the plane and going over and be delighted to get the invitation. But there's something jarring about it in, 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 at this time.
1: Just some of the callers to Liveline on Thursday. Well, we are almost at a finish. And if you do happen to glance at it, keep an eye out for this.
7: It's like a big rock you'd see anywhere, but of course, these things take on symbolism.
1: He speaks, of course, of the ancient ceremonial stone upon which the throne will be placed. The Stone of Scone. Schoon. Scon.
7: The Schoon of Stone. Is that right? Or is it called the Schoon of Stone? I'm not quite sure what's happening there, but if it's called the Schoon of... The Stone of Schoon. Oh, I'm very confused. I, I'll come back to it in a minute.
1: That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week and we will finish with one of our neighbour's finest, Kate Tempest. Who's bad, to the kiddie in a Jacko hat to the kiddie in a Rooney shirt dragging back The curtains in the room in her daddy's flat a young-